This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. My name is Jamie Fiegelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations for the RAND Corporation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here today to our briefing on United States and China Trends in Military Competition. Over the past two decades, China has spent significant resources on modernizing its military, which has shifted the balance, military balance in the Western Pacific. Today, we're going to hear from Eric Higginbotham, who will share the findings from his recent report, The U.S.-China Military Scorecard, and explain what China's military modernization means for U.S. policymakers. Today, he will cover a few different topics, including the evolution of Chinese military capabilities in, spe in specific domains, an overall trend in military balance over time, how Chinese relative gains could affect the strategic decision making of Chinese leaders, and steps the United States can take to limit the impact of a growing Chinese military on deterrence and U.S. strategic interests. And now just to introduce Eric, Eric is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation specializing in East Asian security issues. Before joining RAND in 2005, Eric was a senior fellow of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He taught as a visiting faculty member of Boston's college, Boston College's Political Science Department and served for 16 years in the U.S. Army Reserves and the National Guard. So with the introductory comments out of the way, I'm very pleased to turn it over to Eric to start today's discussion. Greetings. Thanks, Jamie. Um, and thank you all for being here. I know I'm competing with the first son that uh, you all have seen in about a week. Uh, so I appreciate the crowd. Uh, I probably don't have to provide much background primer on this uh, topic. The rise of China presents the U.S. with uh, the most potent uh, conventional military challenges or potential challenges that it's faced uh, at least since the end of the Cold War. It has modern uh, capabilities in all of the military domains. Its defense budget has grown by more than 10 percent since 1996, uh, adjusted for inflation or roughly 620% since that time, 620% in 19 years, again, adjusted for inflation. China is not a peer competitor with the United States in terms of aggregate capabilities, uh, but it would enjoy enormous geographic advantages and other situational advantages in virtually any East Asian conflict that would neutralize many of the U.S. military's strengths. Despite all this, the literature in the open source tends to be limited. There are lots of bean counts, and there are lots of exposés or articles on individual Chinese weapon systems, especially the sexy ones. Uh, uh, but there isn't a lot of good analytic work uh, in the open source uh, literature on the effects of geography uh, and operational dynamics. And that was really our goal here, was to fill that gap. I will pause at this point just to say the intent is to avoid war with uh, China or conflict with China. We're interested in maintaining deterrent capabilities, uh, but we also want to speak to structural uh, stability. Of course, some measures intended to increase deterrent leverage uh, could, in fact, also increase crisis instability. So there are trade-offs to, to pretty much any military efforts that, that might be undertaken. The scorecards assess relative U.S. and Chinese capabilities over time and at two different distances from China. They cover capabilities in five domains, air and missile, maritime, space, cyber, and nuclear. Within those domains, we evaluated how China and the United States would fare against each other in 10 different operational areas listed on the slide. 
In each case, we assessed several tactical components of the competition. We were primarily interested in finding key indicators of capabilities and trends over time, and we certainly did not attempt uh, to assess every possible tactic or concept of operation or alternative force structure. Each scorecard assesses capabilities at four evenly spaced points in time. The primary purpose, again, was to assess trends over time. That's, that's really the reason we did this. But each is also significant for various events going on uh, pertaining to the U.S. military and, and China's military. And we can go into those in Q&A uh, after the session. I won't spend time on that now. We also evaluated capabilities at two different distances from the mainland. The Taiwan scenario is centered 160 kilometers off the Chinese coast, while the Spratly Island scenario is set closer to 1,000 kilometers from the mainland. The former posits a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, while the Spratly Island scenario sees the United States coming to the aid of the Philippines in a South China Sea conflict. The main point, though, again, is to look at a range of distances from China, and these two provide bookends uh, or bookend parameters for a range of different contingencies that might occur in East Asia. The analytical results are summarized in a stoplight chart. Green represents areas of US advantage. Yellow represents rough parity, while orange and red are areas of Chinese advantage. Advantage, in this case, has a particular or specific definition. Specifically, it refers to the capability of both sides or the respective sides to achieve key operational objectives during the first weeks of conflict. And I want to stress here, timing is a key issue since relative advantage could be different in a longer conflict, uh, but there are a lot of contingencies and sort of path dependencies in evaluating that, so also a lot more uncertainty. Three broad trends are evident in the results. Uh, in the main, these are not necessarily surprising that we were able to document them, I think, uh, in uh, in more specific ways than have been done in the past. First, a number of key trend lines run against the United States, really most trend lines run against the United States over this period. Second, the relative decline of US capabilities is not uniform. This is not entirely a gloom and doom story. The United States maintains advantage uh, quite well in some areas. And third, distance matters, and it matters a lot. The US military also does significantly better uh, at farther distances from China than it does nearby. <coughs> As to the first point, in 1996, U.S. capabilities were dominant in virtually all areas. By 2017, it will likely be difficult for the United States to execute some key tasks in the Taiwan case, and U.S. forces will be less dominant uh, in a Spratly Island conflict. To be clear, China would almost certainly lose in both of these scenarios, especially if the conflict became protracted. But China could challenge US air and naval dominance at the outset of a conflict. And a conflict would probably see losses uh, during initial periods, unlike any the United States has seen in recent uh, decades, especially to high-end air and naval systems. One of the PLA's highest priorities over this decade has been the development of a large and sophisticated ballistic and cruise missile force. In a conflict uh, with China, or I'm sorry, a conflict with the United States, forward U.S. air bases uh, would be primary targets. The three maps here provide range rings and numbers for Chinese missile systems and highlight the speed with which the threat has grown. As late as 2003, threat to U.S. air bases was relatively modest. Several hundred relatively inaccurate short-range ballistic missiles 
uh, could strike targets in Taiwan as well as U.S. bases in Korea, but there was effectively no missile threat uh, to U.S. bases in Japan or Guam. Today, the number of short-range ballistic missiles exceeds 1,200, uh, and many of these are extremely accurate systems. Bases in Japan face a growing threat from medium-range ballistic missiles and ground-launched cruise missiles, and Anderson Air Force Base on Guam faces uh, a growing threat as well. Until very recently, the threat to Guam was primarily from air-launched cruise missiles, against which defenses might be relatively effective. But during last month's uh, PLA Victory Parade, uh, the PLA rolled out the DF-26, which can range Guam. That's a ballistic missile system. And with a speed of Mach 7 re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, it'll be much harder to defend uh, than cruise missiles. To assess the impact on U.S. air operations, we modeled the threat to a number of different air bases. The slide shows results for Chinese missile attacks against the Kadena Air Base, the only U.S. Air Force base within unrefueled uh, fighter range of Taiwan. This case looks at runway attacks uh, against, run uh, against Kadena. In other words, the number of days that runways at Kadena could be closed to fighter operations. The modeling takes into account the dimensions of the runway, the number of cut points needed, the Chinese uh, missile inventory, the accuracy of missiles, Chinese battle damage assessment capabilities, U.S. defenses, and U.S. runway repair times. The figure on the left-hand side there employs our baseline assumptions on those points, and we can get into that in Q&A if you want. Uh, the analysis suggests that by 2010, Kadena could have been closed to fighter operations for between four and 10 days, depending on the proportion of Chinese medium-range missiles used against it. Those closure times rise substantially by 2017 as Chinese ballistic missile inventories grow. Now, we also ran hundreds of excursion cases to see how sensitive the results were uh, to that range of variables. The figure on the right then shows what might have been possible or what might be possible if the United States were to take a range of me measures to improve defenses and recovery times. Such measures, it should be noted, would be extremely import uh, expensive, uh, and they probably wouldn't be ready by 2017, even if uh, the investments were made today. The bottom line, then, is that U.S. air bases face a growing uh, and already serious threat from Chinese missiles. In addition to increasing the size and quantity of its missile forces and quality of its missile forces, China has also made striking gains in air-to-air -air, uh, combat capability. In 1996, a majority of its fighters were second generation, that is, aircraft designs that first went into service in the 1950s or early 1960s. The most numerous fighter in the inventory was the J-6, a variant, a modernized variant, of the MiG-19, which first entered Soviet production in 1954. Those obsolete aircraft would have gone up against F-15s, 16s, and F-18s with predictable results. Today, a majority of Chinese aircraft are fourth generation, including advanced fighters manufactured in Russia and China. China today has about 800 fourth generation aircraft. It's been adding about 70 to 80 each year for the last several years. On the U.S. side, a few hundred fifth-generation, stealthy fifth-generation uh, fighters have joined a force that remains predominantly fourth-generation. In other words, while both sides uh, have modernized their air forces, China's inventory has arguably evolved much faster, jumping as it has by two full generations. Even by 2017, as the chart indicates, the United States will still have both a quantitative and qualitative 
edge in its overall inventory. But as I noted earlier, China has enormous uh, situational advantages in the region. While Kadena is the only U.S. Air Force base within unrefueled fighter range of Taiwan, uh, China has 40 such bases, enabling it to deploy far more aircraft uh, to combat areas. Obviously, Kadena is not the only air base we can fly from, and we would certainly use other bases as well. But flying from those other bases uh, will require enormous number of tankers in theater. Uh, some of those bases are 2,000 and 3,000 kilometers from Taiwan, and those tankers will also have to bed down on scarce real estate. The number of bases is still, you know, it's still a handful of bases we're talking about. To understand the impact of these disparate factors, including both geography and changes to aircraft inventory, the team modeled air combat at the tactical and operational level. Results from the tactical model were fed into the larger campaign model. This slide uh, represents results for the Taiwan scenario. It shows the number of fighter squadrons the United States would need in theater to defeat a Chinese air offensive within three weeks or 21 days. The definition we placed on that was the destruction of half of the committed Chinese aircraft. We examined two different basing possibilities. In the dark blue, we have the number of US squadrons required if aircraft can be based primarily at Kadena or an equivalent distance from Taiwan. And in the light blue are the additional squadrons necessary if uh, aircraft can fly from more distant locations, such as Anderson Air Force Base on Guam. The model results suggest that the number of squadrons required increased more than tenfold over this period, from one squadron in 1996 to roughly 12 squadrons in 2017. That force structure, the required force structure, can then be compared uh, to the basing capacity in theater. And here we take into account the need to bend bed down other aircraft, including those tankers we mentioned earlier. The higher 2017 number, in other words, that 12 uh, squadrons, would begin to strain existing U.S. basing capacity in Japan and Guam. Again, those numbers represent a single baseline case, but the trend lines are clear, and especially in the context of the missile threat that we talked about earlier uh, and U.S. budget constraints, uh, they pose real challenges to U.S. commanders. All right, the Chinese ability to locate and hold U.S. aircraft carriers at risk off the Chinese coast is another area of particular concern. In 1996, China lacked effective over-the-horizon ISR capability, and U.S. carriers could operate with impunity, uh, or essentially with impunity, beyond visual range of the Chinese coast. Since then, however, space-based and other ISR capabilities on, on China's side have improved dramatically, and it's really the combination of those various types of assets that poses the biggest challenge uh, to U.S. operations. The top row on this table represents average PLA imaging time using satellite imaging, satellite, imaging satellites only against a single ship within operational range of Taiwan, or 1,000 kilometers of Taiwan, I should say. From 2003 to 2017, the times have shortened from several weeks, or perhaps beyond a month, to several days. Now, several days is still not great from the Chinese perspective uh, for operational military purposes. But China can improve that revisit rate dramatically by queuing its imaging satellites or refining the search area using information from other sources. China now has at least two methods to detect ships off its coast and pass contacts along for identification and more exact uh, location fixes. 
One of those is SkyWave uh, over-the-horizon radar, which can detect ships out to 2,000 kilometers beyond the Chinese coast. The SkyWave radar is depicted there on the left. This kind of backscatter radar provides uh, extremely reliable detection, but imprecise location uh, and, and identification. In other words, it can tell you that something's out there and approximately where it is, um, but not exactly what it is or where it is. So it may not be good enough for a targeting fix without further information. The lower uh, row there provides uh, revisit times if the backscatter radar or some other method, method such as SIGINT radars can actually cue the satellites and the satellites can then be pointed in roughly the same direction. So with these systems working together, they can get uh, revisit rates down from days uh, potentially to, to hours, which, which is quite significant. Now the U.S. has ways to mitigate this or uh, potentially to deny this, but Chinese ISR capabilities are becoming more robust uh, over time. So um, that's a diminishing capability. We examined various ways that PLA forces might then attack U.S. carriers, including anti-ship ballistic missiles, air launch cruise missiles, and submarine attacks. In many ways, the most mature threat is presented by Chinese submarines. In 1996, Chinese submarines were all antiquated boats, most based on 1950s designs. They were noisy, they had limited range, and were armed only with torpedoes. These older submarines were like their World War II counterparts in being optimized for speed on the surface. They lacked the teardrop shape that, modern, that helped modern submarines run faster underwater. Today, however, more than half the force, uh, close to 40 boats, uh, is comprised of modern designs. Those modern designs are faster, they're quieter, even if they're not as quiet as U.S. submarines, and they're armed with cruise missiles as well as torpedoes, enabling them to attack from greater distances as well as from different angles and attitudes. The team modeled a Chinese submarine campaign against U.S. carriers involving roughly 16 uh, deployed submarines. Inputs included uh, movement speeds, detection distances, and weapons ranges and capabilities. U.S. anti-submarine capabilities were also presented in the model. The slide here uh, shows the number of attack opportunities that Chinese submarines might achieve against a single carrier over a seven-day period. In other words, how many opportunities Chinese submarines might have to launch either a torpedo or a cruise missile against a carrier. They may not take all those attack opportunities, and even uh, for the opportunities that they do take, for the attacks that they launch, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would hit, much less destroy or damage a U.S. carrier, but the metric gives us some sense of the evolving magnitude of the problem. The red bar indicates the number of engagement opportunities that submarines uh, might achieve if each submarine operated independently without external information about the location of U.S. carriers. Uh, the number of expected engagements rose more than tenfold over the period. Uh, results with queuing are indicated in the dark red bars, and you can see from that with even modest information about the location of U.S. carriers, and here we're assuming one single location report every 24 hours. Uh, the number of engagements could go up quite dramatically, as much as roughly an order of magnitude again. Under those circumstances, by 2017, Chinese submarines might be able to engage a carrier several times during a week of active operations. Now, obviously, U.S. naval commanders can mitigate that threat. One of the ways they can do that is by holding uh, carriers back farther from the action. But in that case, naval aircraft will be flying greater distances. 
They'll require more tanker support from the U.S. Air Force since they don't have a lot of uh, tanker capability on board. And again, since tankers need a place to bed down, that exacerbates the U.S. Air Force problem of scarce real estate in the theater. U.S. relative capabilities re remain more robust in some areas than others. I'll start with an area uh, where open source information is particularly <coughs> limited, specifically cyber warfare. There's been a veritable flood of media reports about cyber uh, espionage coming out of China. Uh, but we concluded that cyber warfare is an area of continuing, if diminishing, U.S. advantage. Notably, most uh, of the media reports concern Chinese penetration of relatively lightly defended uh, commercial networks. Cyber spying, though, is not entirely synonymous with cyber warfare in an operational military context. As a side note, the U.S. does have an extremely well-developed cyber espionage capability in the NSA, even if it doesn't use that capability for wholesale commercial gain. In the operational realm, uh, both sides are building both offensive and defensive capabilities, led on our side, of course, by U.S. Cyber Command, which was stood up in 2010 and works closely with the NSA. According to journalist uh, Shane Harris, the NSA and Cyber Command have stockpiled some 2,000 uh, zero-day vulnerabilities specifically against China. And to provide some context for that, a total of four zero-day vulnerabilities were reportedly used um, in the Stuxnet attack. Both sides have particular strengths and weaknesses that often derive as much from national characteristics as they do from uh, any military-specific factors. Software piracy is endemic in China. Pirated software doesn't receive security updates. And China has the world's highest rate of malware infect infected computers in the world. In fact, according to a, a, a Microsoft a spot check, some 40% of Chinese computers for sale in stores not only had pirated versions of Microsoft pre-installed, but also came with, uh, with, uh, with the malware. Else also pre-installed. No extra charge, right. Cyber warfare will undoubtedly produce many unpleasant surprises uh, for both sides, but the United States does have uh, more and better cards in this game than are often acknowledged. If you want to talk about areas of U.S. vulnerability, it's probably in the logistical chain. Uh, the U.S. logistical network runs entirely on unclassified computers, and of course we have very long lines of communication. So uh, for the U.S., that's likely to be one area uh, a, a, a particular weakness. Another example of continuing strength is U.S. anti-surface warfare. We modeled U.S. air, surface, and submarine attacks against a Chinese amphibious fleet. I'll focus here on U.S. submarine attacks in the Taiwan uh, scenario. On the slide, uh, the arrow shows a notional invasion route for the fleet, together with Chinese surface, submarine, uh, and air assets screening the area. We looked at the ability of U.S. submarines to penetrate into the strait, avoid detection, and prosecute attacks against the fleet. We assumed two U.S. submarines uh, operating at any one time within the straits, rotating in and out. This slide provides some data on Chinese amphibious lift as well as Chinese airborne uh, ASW capabilities. The total capacity of the Chinese amphibious fleet has roughly doubled over this period. More importantly uh, has been the uh, modernization of the fleet. The picture to the left is the Yuzhou, a thoroughly modern uh, amphibious warship uh, that can hold four LCACs and four uh, helicopters, as well as a battalion of troops. 
and not just more of these, but larger uh, amphibious assault ships are coming uh, through the pipeline. It's often said that China's done less to modernize its anti-submarine warfare capability than it's done in other areas, but the table below shows that uh, it hasn't left this, uh, this area entirely idle either. A growing number of Chinese aerial platforms are equipped with maritime search radar that could detect uh, submarine periscopes. And, at and in the last several years, China has rolled out three new anti-submarine warfare platforms, an ASW helicopter with sonar buoys and dipping sonar, a new MPA maritime patrol aircraft with a new type of maritime search radar, and a purpose-built ASW Corvette. And they launched that, I think, in uh, 2012 or 2013, and they've got 20 uh, floating now. So it's been an extraordinarily rapid effort on their part. This slide presents modeling results for U.S. submarine op operations, specifically the number of Chinese amphibious ships destroyed over seven days. The number declines in 2017 uh, as China deploys more aircraft equipped with maritime search radar. But even in 2017, submarines are alone are able to do very substantial damage uh, to a landing force, sinking 37 of a total of 100 ships. By any reasonable historical standards, those losses would be extraordinary. Personnel losses alone could come to something like 10,000 with a much larger effect on organizational cohesion. Finally, the U.S. ability to strike and destroy fixed ground targets inside of China has also remained robust. To be sure, improvements to Chinese uh, uh, air defenses have greatly diminished the ability of fourth generation aircraft to penetrate Chinese airspace but our modeling suggests uh, that a combination of U.S. stealth capabilities and a growing inventory of, of precision standoff weapons has largely offset uh, the impact of Chinese improvements. We modeled U.S. attacks against Chinese air bases relative, uh, relevant to, to a Taiwan and, and Spratly Island scenario. The modeling results show significant improvements uh, for U.S. relative capabilities between 1996 and 2010, largely as a result of greater precision, and then a plateau after that. Optimistic conclusions in this area come with some important caveats. Uh, maybe most importantly, U.S. capability increasingly relies on a growing but finite supply of standoff missiles. Once those weapons are fired, uh, they can't be replaced quickly, so the same results might not hold in a, uh, in a longer uh, conflict. Nevertheless, I think the modeling does remind us that the U.S. military has benefited from some of the same technologies uh, that China has also leveraged for its long-range strike capabilities. And then finally, a more general pattern of difference is that the U.S. fares better uh, at a distance from China to the, than it does closer to the mainland, and I think that's evident from our, from our coding. Uh, just for a couple of more specific examples, the U.S. needs only half of the fighter force structure or inventory in theater to prevail in 21 days in the Spratly case than it does closer to the mainland. And by some measures, U.S. strikes against Chinese air bases relevant to the Spratly scenario would be far more effective uh, than against targets opposite Taiwan. It should be observed that China is making relative gains even in the more distant scenario, uh, but it's going to take some time before the, the, that same degree of threat exists farther from the Chinese coast. The findings have a number of implications. Um, I'd throw out four of these just to start the conversation. The first and most obvious is that China can challenge U.S. military dominance at an increasing distance from the mainland. 
In scenarios close to China, the air and naval fight would be hotly contested, losses for both sides would be high, and at the outset, the U.S. would have a hard time bringing forces close enough to bring them fully to bear. Secondly, anything the U.S. military can do to turn the tables by using distance to its advantage uh, will strengthen its position. The map to the left depicts current U.S. force posture, specifically the total number of U.S. Uh, military personnel by subregion. As a function of historical accident and legacy, U.S. forces are overwhelmingly concentrated in a few large bases in Northeast Asia, all well within <coughs> missile and air attack range. Ideally, U.S. forces might operate from a larger number of locations, some of which would be farther from China, but still within practical range of potential conflict areas. U.S. forces might then move forward in a series of phased operations as PLA missile inventories are depleted or exhausted or as the Chinese ability to locate and target U.S. forces is degraded, in other words, their ISR capability. To gain the necessary access to pursue such a strategy, the United States will have to redouble its regional diplomatic efforts. Right now, the U.S. has very limited access in Southeast Asia. Several states, including Philippines and Vietnam, have expressed a willingness to deepen strategic relations, but gaining anything approaching reliable access across the region uh, will certainly require sustained focus and effort. In addition to gaining new access, Washington will also have to reassure existing allies uh, and partners and demonstrate its commitment and capability. Reassurance, in turn, will be complicated by the need to mitigate the risk that those same partners could drag the United States into conflicts uh, not in its own interests. And finally, uh, the United States should engage China, I think, as intensively as it can with the minimum objective of sensitizing both sides to the primary concerns and thinking of the other. Got more to say on that, maybe, but I'll wrap up there so we can discuss that or, or any other points. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.